Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is a podcast from Minute Media. One and two to Glaber Torres. He struck him out and the ball game is over. Edwin Diaz for the four-out save, four strikeouts. The Mets with a four-run first inning. Home runs from Marte and Escobar. Terrific defense all night long. And the Mets take the opener from the Yankees, 6-3. to three. Game on the line. 1-0 to Marte. Peralta deals. Swing and a liner to left. Base hit. Put it in the books. Here comes Escobar. He scores the winning run. Marte slams his helmet down at first. The Mets have swept the Yankees. They have defeated them 3-2. The Mets pour out of the dugout. They are mobbing Starling Marte to the right of second base. The Mets have gained a game on the Atlanta Braves. They're now three up in the National League East as they have swept the two-game series from the Yankees. Winning it 3-2 to tonight in the bottom of the ninth inning on a game-winning single. Does winning these games just kind of add to that ability for a team to, to do that? Well, we'll see. You know, the proof is in the, the end game. But, um, you know, we've played a lot of emotional games here already. And anytime you play in New York and you play in front of our fans, there's a real engagement of it. Obviously, you know, I understand why it might be at a little different level tonight, and rightfully so, but... Uh, you know, pressure's, you know, it's kind of what you make of it. It's a privilege, and, you know, to be able to play in this, like I told the players in advancement, it's a privilege to play in this environment and, you know, have fun, draw something from it, and, you know, you'll be able to reach back for it as, as we go forward and hopefully be able to use it if we can get an opportunity to do what we're trying to do.
It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Thursday, July the 28th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show an Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network, as well as RisingApple.com. Well, I teased a little bit coming to you with an historical perspective, a little thing about the Subway Series, and... As we got into the game and as we got into the off day, I said to myself, let's hold it till the two games are over so I could give a little introduction and thoughts about the series. What you're going to hear in just a little bit, and we'll get into some of my thoughts about the series and current things, you know, DH talk and who who could help lengthen the Mets lineup. We'll get into that. Uh, you're going to hear an interview that I conducted in 2017 on the 20th anniversary of the Subway Series, Dave Malicki joined me. Dave Malicki, Malicki actually joined me before he did SNY and the and the whole circuit at that point because I was like, hey, let's let's get was able to reach out to him. I think it was over Facebook, and he was kind enough to give me some time. We talked about that game, and obviously, when I get these guys on, I like to talk a little bit about their careers. So, again, like I always say, some of these Vault audios are not as clean, and the technology wasn't as available as it is today. So. I forgive me if you have more of a voiceover IP experience when you hear the interview, but I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, Dave is a great guy, and I had a great conversation. So even though it's the 25th anniversary of the Subway Series, and we talked a little bit about that with John Jastrzemski on Sunday, you're going to get to hear my conversation with Dave Malicki from 2017, where we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Subway Series. So you heard the clips coming in. You heard the Diaz save. You heard the big hit from Starling Marte to win it on a walk-off in the ninth inning. You heard Buck's perspective in the post game. And what do you expect with Buck Showalter? It is truly, and I have always said this, he never gets too high. He never gets too low. Not that he puts cold water or dampens cold water on things, but he's always like, hey, great experience, a lot more bridges to cross. They have a tough schedule in August. Everybody knows that. They get a little bit of a blow over the next six days or six games, I should say. They're off today uh, as they play the, uh, the Marlins and the Nats. After a big Subway series, those are the kind of series that you have the come down because the atmosphere in Miami is going to be 180 degrees different than what it was at City Field. So got to keep perspective on to the next, focus on today's game. So... You know, you got to love Buck. Uh, as I said, he's everything that I could have asked for. He's the Pat Riley, in my opinion, of the Mets. He's having that same kind of impact on this organization that Pat did when he came over to the Knicks in 1991. Uh, can't say enough. We've talked about that a billion times. But let me get to the the Subway Series and give you a quick synopsis because uh, I'm going to have a, a regular show here, but I don't want to go on too long, and I do want to get so you can enjoy the Dave Malicki historical perspective. These were two fun games. They were really fun. I I hate to be the wet blanket, and maybe I'm showing my curmudgeonly age, but it's not the same as 97, 98, 99, 2000, and to a, 2001, and even to a certain degree, 2006. Um, these are playoff games. Uh, I said over the weekend when, when I spoke to you on Sunday, the kind of games, the kind of ways that they have to be managed and the intensity and 
the experiences that the players have talked about, this is what you're going to experience in a playoff series, whether it be, you know, Subway Series in July or San Diego on the weekend and the ESPN Sunday night game. This is the kind of baseball that you will play night in and night out in October or November, depending about how deep you go into these uh, postseason series and tournaments. So uh, it was interesting. Even though you have Buck, who has tons of experience and has played, uh, has managed teams in the postseason, he has won a championship, and I don't believe he's ever, no, he's ever been to the World Series with the team. He has um, managed teams in the postseason, understands it. Scherzer's won a championship. You you heard whether it be Escobar or Pete Alonso, not surprising there. Uh, a lot of the guys uh, talk about how surprised, well, maybe not surprised, but maybe to a certain degree surprised at the intensity, the environment, how fun it is, the crowd. And you forget that the Canas, the Escobars, the McNeils, the Pete Alonzos, guys like that have never really been deep into the postseason or experienced, in a case, a postseason series. Even if they've played in the postseason, some of these guys have been in and out, maybe in a, in a short division series, maybe in a one-game playoff. Uh, you know, Oakland went into, into, into Yankee Stadium and lost. I know Escobar's with Milwaukee. But let's face it, even though there's crazy environments, I mean, a few years back, you remember the Toronto environment was as crazy probably as any environment you could have in North American sports. It's just not like City Field or if they were at Yankee Stadium, which they will be in about a month or so. Um, it's not the same, and they're experiencing it for the first time. And although we're clearly in the what does this team need phase, and we know who the Mets are, and they continue to prove who they are, it's almost like they had to use the San Diego game or even the Subway Series as a measuring stick for themselves because it was an opportunity to kick themselves into gear. I thought after they had won the two games with the Cubs, they had a very sleepy game before the break. They were very sleepy coming out, out of the break. You Darvish will do that to you. Blake Snell, even though he's not having a great year, will do that to you. But they also let a, a few Padres relievers that I think didn't really deserve to be off the hook, off the hook. And then they get into this atmosphere. They fall behind pretty quick in game one. It's like, all right, let's kick this thing in the gear. Let's get back to being the team that we've been for the first, uh, you know, 60, 70% of the year. And, you know, play two very entertaining, very fun ball games. The Subway Series has always been, and I've said this to you, historically for the Mets, an opportunity to get a taste of playoff baseball and really put a measuring stick and, and train yourself. Hey, this is what it's going to be like. Everybody's different. Everybody handles the spotlight and stress different. And if you could get a little taste of that in a regular season game to prepare yourself, to develop some of that muscle memory or to calm your nerves or to clear the mechanism to borrow that line from for the love of the game and Kevin Costner, why not? Because they're clearly kicking themselves into the get-it-done gear. Next week... At this time, there's no more talk about who the Mets are going to acquire. The team is going to be the team. It's going to be about how can they get it done, and these are the kind of things that are as important, experiencing that and being successful, are as important as who they're going to get before August 2nd to be the designated hitter or whatever. It's funny because I keep thinking about 
when this thing went. Because it's not the same. It was fun, though. And it definitely is headed in the right direction, the Subway series. I think I have to accept that it's never going to be the charm of the initial four or five of them because anything new is like that. But it has gotten stale. But I think around 2008, the Yankees didn't make the postseason that year. The Mets had made it were close, but no cigar at the end. I kind of felt it dipped off. In 2007, it was still kind of there, but it dipped off. You were already 10 years plus into the thing. This is the first time since around the 08, 09, when these teams played, where I felt there was a lot of media excitement, especially. But the fans got back into it. It's also a different fan base. Maybe the fan base that's younger, that I, I take for granted, if you're 25 years old or so, you didn't really, you weren't young enough. You weren't old, excuse me, you weren't old enough to understand or experience 97 because you were you were baby a baby so they're experiencing the first time and they're different and and it's and it's a lot it's a lot uh more unique to you i can say that and this is anecdotal of course the atmosphere at city field was widely pro mets in the, historically when you go back to the 90s yankees mets it was always aggravating that the yankees fans would have a big percentage of shea, of shea stadium at the time It'd still be more Mets, but it was a squish more Mets. And then you go to Yankee Stadium, and it would be very pro-Yankees, maybe 70-30. The gap was always shrunk. The Mets never really had the full home field advantage. I felt, you know, there was a good number of Yankees fans. You heard them cheer when Gleyber Torres uh, hit the home run to tie the ball game off of David Peterson. But it was very, very, very pro-Mets. And it was uh, heavily pro-Mets, similar to what... Uh, I believe you'll see pro Yankees at Yankee Stadium. It will be interesting. Maybe, maybe the tide is turning. You know, I've talked about the attendance numbers. The Yankees' attendance is down. The Mets' attendance, although not growing, and they've only sold out three games. I wonder. I'm assuming now it's four because I'm sure last night was a sellout as well. Uh, you know, maybe there is this burgeoning Mets fan base that's getting behind this team and this new owner, and the fact that this is a connected team that represents. All the New Yorkers, all the boroughs, they're much more of a, uh, a touchy-feely, down-to-earth, blue-collar organization. We may lose some of that, I've said, as Steve Cohen continues to invest and build them into East Coast Dodgers, if you want to use that. So uh, everything positive out of this, even if they had lost one or two of these games, I wasn't going to go crazy. Uh, does it feel good to beat the Yankees? I'm sure all of you listening that are Mets fans feel good beating the Yankees. Is it the same for me? No. To me, I'm feeling good because the Mets are up four games in the loss column, three games over the Braves. They won a big game uh, that they you know, they easily could have lost. And it's the cherry on top that it was about the Yankees. And it was, more importantly, it was the atmosphere. If those two games were against the Dodgers, maybe it wouldn't be talked about the same. But I have a feeling that the atmosphere would be the same. Maybe more so on the weekend than during the week. Well, you know, that's a different story. And the, the wins would be sweet, just like the wins were very sweet when the Mets went out to L.A. And we had our uh, our friend Anthony Rivera from Subway Shea on, and we had we we came on just a, a little bit after the the big Adonis Medina save. To me, that was as fun as the Subway series. But this is a good test, and it really brought to light to me the experiences that some of these veterans, like an Escobar, haven't really had, even though they've been in the league a long time because they've been playing in smaller markets. They haven't played in a ton of uh, playoff baseball. And that's one thing if you look at the Mets roster. I mean, Daniel Vogelback comes over from Pittsburgh and he says on Sunday, this is the best atmosphere I've ever played in. I mean, he's a young player. He's about 30 years old, but he hasn't been in the league five minutes. 
So it really goes to show you when you play in these other markets like Milwaukee and Seattle and Oakland, even if you have a taste of playoff baseball on the road, maybe at Yankee Stadium or Houston or whatever, it's not the same for these guys or, they're, or, or it's jumping out at them. And when the lights get bright and they're playing a five-game, seven-game, or maybe they're a wild-card team and they're playing a three-game series at City Field against San Diego or St. Louis or you know Philadelphia, whoever, this is what it's going to be like and you've got to step up because those other teams have good players too. Those other teams, especially in the short series, are going to have good bullpens maybe and a good closer and an ace that neutralizes a Scherzer or DeGrom or a Bassett or whatever. So uh, this was a fun – accomplish what, from a real practical baseball standpoint, you want to accomplish, which is let's get a little atmosphere going. Let's push ourselves. Let's test ourselves. Mets – you know, we know the Mets are. The Mets were testing themselves. Now, you did see – and this is what the interesting part is here. We know the Mets need a bullpen arm. We know everybody's pining for David Robertson. We'll get into the rumors. There's a Wilson Contreras, David Robertson rumor. Mets are going to have to give up some prospects. As I said, there's going to be pain this trade deadline. You're not going to like the packages if you get any of these guys. Story for the after the break. But outside of Adovino and Diaz, the, the blueprint you saw in the first game where he went Walker and then he pushed Adovino to almost two, two innings and then he went four outs with Diaz. Who does Buck trust? And did Seth Lugo, I'm not going to say he looked vintage Seth Lugo, but he looked good last night. He had his his command, his, his curveball was, was sharp. Uh, even though he wasn't throwing 100 miles an hour, he was able to locate and get swings and misses. Can Lugo get back into the circle of trust? Because I wasn't crazy. When I saw Peterson warming up, and the, uh, as Scherzer was getting some trouble in the seventh, and I'm like, well, is he going to, why would he bring him in? And then I looked at who was coming up. I'm like, all right, he's going to try to put Peterson into a situation where he's a lefty. Can he go out and get lefties out like Carpenter, like uh, uh, like Hicks, like Rizzo? And I know Torres was in between, but you guys know the numbers. Peterson is very nasty when he gets ahead of uh, hitters. Uh, he has almost a 50% strikeout rate. And uh, this is a chance for the Mets to see, you know, when we go out, do we need to go out and get two bullpen arms maybe? I'm totally speculating, but I'm sure part of that is, let's see what this guy's got. Big game, big atmosphere, lefties coming up. Can I use him? Because he's if DeGrom stays effective and healthy, if DeGrom stays healthy, he's going to start. Not going to go into bullpen. Peterson is not really needed except for a couple of double headers coming up the rest of the year. And you also have Trevor Williams, so there's always that possibility that he sneaks into that conversation if you acquire a couple of bullpen arms. Because if you go up and down, the Mets might not be able to keep Peterson on the roster. Because you got Diaz, you got Drew Smith, you got Seth Lugo, you got Adovino, you've got Trevor Williams, you got Tommy Hunter. I'm assuming those six aren't going anywhere, including Tommy Hunter, unless something crazy happens. Juan Lopez's spot and Joely Rodriguez's spot are the weak links. You know Trevor May's coming back, so he's going to take one of them. So you really only have one of the spots. And you can't carry more than 13 pitchers. So more than likely, David Peterson's going down to AAA unless they say, hmm, you know, maybe we could sneak him in there and find some way to keep him around. There's also been talk, and this is Twitter talk, that the Mets move on from Seth Lugo if they could get a Robertson or a second big arm. I don't know if they have room until the rosters expand, and that's when you bring Peterson back, to have uh, two acquisitions. So you really have to get, and I think Andy Martino reported this, that the Mets are really looking for somebody who can get lefties and righties out. So you do want, it, it was interesting that Buck used a big game, and I know the fans hate it, 
you know, my dad texted me, you know, why is he doing this? Well, Buck's looking this out in the long game. He's not getting too caught up in one game. And I think even the to me, the Mets took this, I don't want to say more serious. I think both teams had fun. But from a, I mean, in the day, back in the day when it was Bobby Valentine and Joe Torre, you would not see Peralta or Peterson making their way into these games. <laughs> they would have to push. You might have saw Mariano for two. You know, Clay Holmes pitched one, and they might have saw Mariano for two. Holmes would have to do a Mariano on that. Uh, so I really think, to me, it's very clear that Robertson is the guy. The Mets need that second closer type. And why not get someone who has closed? And they're a free agent, so you know I, I know that these guys want to make money, and, and closing games make money. But I think the way the league has evolved now, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, they're not going to be able to get paid to be a closer in the market because they set up for Edwin Diaz for you know six weeks or eight weeks or whatever it may be. Uh, they need someone who could cross over lefty righty, the situational lefty type, the Joely Rodriguez type, the old Jerry Blevins type, the Pedro Feliciano type. May God rest his soul. Um, they're 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 antiquated. You have to get lefties and righties out, and Peterson could do that. He's not ready. He fought. Peterson, you saw why. He's always probably going to leave you lacking until he really hones in on his command. He get he got he did not he did not throw any maybe he threw one strike to Rizzo, but he didn't get ahead of him. And then sure enough, the next guy's up. Hey, I'm going to wait for his fastball because he doesn't want to walk another guy. Bing bang boom tie game. That's why walks out of the bullpen are a death knell. And until he gets to a certain level, he's always going to be probably a frustrating back end of the rotation starter, valuable, but never anybody that you completely love. And he'll make money doing that if he can pitch pretty similarly to how he's pitched this year for the rest of his career. He'll make good money. And, uh, you know, he'll be a guy at the bullpen that you're like, ah, do I really want this guy in a big spot? So the other thing is, and our good friend Howard Megdell, and I actually texted him yesterday, say wouldn't be a press conference. Howard always loved bringing up bullpen management to Willie Randolph or Jerry Manuel because it's always been a bugaboo for Howard. If anyone who's listened to this show for a long time knows that, uh, you know, the uh, the author of the Baseball Talmud and other fine books that you should check out, Google Howard Megdell on Amazon, you'll see them. Brought up Diaz and, and what it would take for Buck to do Diaz multiple innings because, let's face it, he's so good. And you saw the maturity and the evolution of Edwin Diaz right in front of you. We've talked about him. I talked about why he's my favorite Mets All-Star and how important he is. And I even said he's probably the Mets MVP for the first half. But here's a situation which was prime for Diaz to take a step back. Got a cheap hit. That's been a marker of his entire Mets career. Somebody nubs one out because he's so nasty. His pitches are so nasty that some silly contact goes into no man's land. Then he gets an out. That's the big out. So you, you saw the difference where he didn't spiral after a bad situation. But then another bad situation happens, his own doing, where he doesn't make the right play. He tries to, to rush a double play with Judge running, probably not going to get it on the tapper. And the ball slips out of his hands. Now it's first and second one out. You got middle of the order coming up. And in the past, his command would go off. He'd fall behind. You're thinking, I know you are. Oh, my God, someone's going to get a hole in one and tie this ball game up. Or you're going to see this total meltdown inning where they're going to have to go and get him out of there and bring somebody in. And, and now it's going to be one of these heartbreaking losses. Worse so for fans because it's the Yankees and because maybe their their mother, their father, their brother, their sister, their significant other is going to be in their face about it. Nobody wants to go home and deal with that. Well, 
Edwin Diaz says not this time. He even said in the postgame he laughed about it. Maybe that's how he needed to handle the adversity. But he, he, he nodded his head up and down, and bing, bang, boom, he gets the outs. I mean, an historically good season. The strikeout rate is insane. It's video game-ish. And that, to me, out of all the things that have happened over the last couple of days, we know Max Scherzer's a big-time guy. We know he's going to pitch big-time in the postseason when he's given the ball. The question is, can he stay healthy and get the ball? Can he get the ball multiple times? Can he even come out of the bullpen after he's made a start later in a series? Because he couldn't do that for the Dodgers. His body didn't hold up. That was the question when he was signed. That was it. We knew if he was healthy. I, I didn't really believe Max Scherzer was going to get New York-itis. Uh, the big thing we learned is Diaz has evolved. And if Diaz has evolved, has evolved, the question is, how many times in a big spot can he go four, five, six outs? Can he do it on back-to-back? Is he built that way? He's a wiry guy. We don't know much about his ability to recover after stressful outings. We do know, historically at least, and I don't have data in front of me, but my observations has been once he hits 25 pitches, now that's in an inning. I'm not talking about over two innings. That's a different analysis, the up and down. The up and down creates a whole different situation. When he hits 25 pitches, his effectiveness goes away. When his sharpness goes away and he falls behind, he has been more confident, as the data and the metrics indicate, he's about 50-50, maybe slightly higher, where you're going to get a slider. They just wait on that fastball. The fastball, though, has so much more movement. Even saw that with, with uh, I think it was Judge when he went after Judge before the, 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 the era. So to see that, you know, think back to the, how the Yankees, as they got deeper into their four championships and five years run, yeah, they had Nelson and Stanton, and that bridged the gap from whoever was starting the ball game. But when it got to the eighth inning, Joe Torre went. And even in big games against the Red Sox in the regular season and maybe the Subway Series against the Mets, Rivera would go two innings. Now, you had to spot it, and Joe would typically not want to start doing it till later in the year because do you need to do it in May? I mean, sometimes there are these must-wins. Maybe you're on a losing streak, whatever. He brought him in that way uh, against the Dodgers. That was June. He did it against Anaheim on that road trip. And I think he did it because he, and his explanation to Howard was, he was available. There was other times he was available to do that. He probably wanted to save some bullpen. Maybe he was a little short in other parts of the bullpen. And he wanted to win those games. He wanted to win and split against the Dodgers because that's a big statement. He wanted to win and end the road trip, the West Coast trip on a high note against Anaheim and not have Mike Trout beat him. So he brings him in in the eighth inning. And Diaz has been fabulous on that. Now, have they done it time and time and time again? You didn't see him have that when he was really, was he three days in a row? You didn't see him push him against the Braves when they could have used him? Um, well, they, they they lost that game, but he wasn't going to pitch in, that game, in the second game of that Atlanta series recently because you know Buck didn't want to push him. But in a postseason series, three games and three nights, let's say a wild card series, or in a five-game series where you may get a day off in between two and three, but that's it, he's going to have to go two days in a row or three or three out of four or four out of five. Are you able to do four outs plus on each one of them? Mariano, for a lot of these series, maybe didn't have to all the time, but he would. And if you remember, the Mets lost the 2000 World Series because Stanton, Nelson, Rivera. That's where the game was over. It was a five-inning game. And the Mets for the first five or six innings were every bit as good as the Yankees. But the third part, Benitez, Franco, Turk, Cook, those guys, 
uh, especially Benitez, who was good, but he wasn't Mariano. He wasn't locked down. They weren't. And and the Yankees basically said to the offense after the fifth, sixth inning, you're not going to score. And this Yankees team, if you face them in short series, even these no-namer guys they got coming out, they got great bullpen arms. I wish whatever Billy Epler could gleam from his buddy Cashman, the one thing I wish he could gleam, and he was over there, he hasn't been there in a long time, is how are they figuring out how to get all these arms, whether it be their own or acquisition like a Clay Holmes, and turn them into elite relievers? Tell me, please. Please tell me, because I like them to know. So that, to me, is uh, a really big uh, takeaway. Uh, you know, they, they, they need another arm. They're going to get another arm. I hope it's an elite impact arm. You know, not just some throw-in in a deal with the Nationals for Juan Soto. And, uh, or I mean, more like Josh Bell. I shouldn't say Juan Soto because I don't think that's happening. I've been telling you that from the start. Um, so that's that. So fun two days. Put it in the books to quote Howie Rose. Move on to the next. And uh, good for bragging rights, but no bigger than going out. All this gets negated if they go and play poorly against Miami and Washington down the Mid Atlantic corridor there. They got to play well down that Mid Atlantic corridor. Because then they come back for a big series against the Braves. Two really big series. We're not going to get into that today. But uh, you have a great opportunity. Four up in the loss column. Winnable games against two teams that, uh, you know, Braves got, I mean, the Nats got plucky against the Dodgers. You cannot take anybody for granted this time of the year. Even if it's a team at some point that gets ripped apart. Remember, there's always young players on the other side that are fighting for their baseball lives. Fighting to make money. Fighting to stay relevant. And when that's in play, sometimes talent, maybe just for a night, doesn't matter. And we've talked about that. So, all right, let's take a quick break. We're not going to get to the Maliki vault just yet. When we come back very shortly, I've been assessing it. You know, there's J.D. Martinez rumors. People want Brandon Drury. Uh, there's rumors about Wilson Contreras. I'll give you where I think the Mets, re- you know, Trey Mancini, where the Mets really need to get into this and how, what would be the best deal out of all the rumored deals. So I'll talk about that more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. So, real quick before I get to the fall of the Dave Malicki interview, because I know some of you guys like how we how we go back in history. So, there's a lot of rumors here. There's rumors that the Mets are interested in Trey Mancini. I'm not going to get into Juan Soto anymore because I think we all have talked about that ad nauseum the last two weeks. I don't think it's going to happen. And I think it's fairly obvious why David Robertson, in my opinion, is the best bullpen arm to acquire. And and really, we've talked about requiring it in separate trades, but you may be able to kill two birds with one stone with Robertson with the Cubs, something that I wasn't always hot to trot about with Wilson Contreras, but I'll get to that in a minute. So first off, you have here's the names you're really hearing, the breadcrumbs we're hearing about Mets DH uh, uh options and they're all right-handed bats or switch hitters and you know the first one is uh jd martinez and and let me be frank about jd martinez i I think he's the best 
overall option out there. Best resume, elite hitter, free agent, Boston, played in big games, won a championship there. You can't ask for more than that. The problem I have with J.D. Martinez is with the qualifying offer now in play because the international draft was not agreed upon, the Red Sox are going to have to assess is the – Will they offer him the qualifying offer? That's a big if, but it depends on his health because there's back issues, and that bo- that bothers me a lot. And it's been recent back issues, last three, four, five week. Back issues are a bad thing. You don't want to acquire someone, give up prospect capital, solve what you think is an issue, and then the guy's sitting most of the time and compromised the entire time he's here. To me, that's a very, very dangerous, dangerous game to play. He has hit with, very, with much less power this year, which indicates something might be going on. Uh, yes, he hits left-handed pitching. He's a righty bat, hits left-handed pitching at a high level, exactly what they need. But you're not giving up prospect capital for a guy like J.D. Martinez to play 30% of the time only against lefties. You're you're basically putting Volker back on the bench, and you're putting J.D. in there. And the last two months, he's only hit four home runs, and he's hitting about 230, and his OPS is under 700. I mean, that's what you're getting from J.D. Davis. I mean, really, he's pretty much been J.D. Davis the last month. You have J.D. Davis. You don't have to give up anything to keep J.D. Davis for J.D. Davis production. And to a certain degree, the more I look at Trey Mancini, another guy, righty bat, has some versatility where he could play the outfield in first base so he could give you a little bit more than just a D.H. like maybe a J.D. Martinez who, uh, you know, he could play outfield J.D., but I think you're going to just put him in as a D.H., again, very much numbers like J.D. Davis the last couple of months uh, better you know, this month it's been two, you know, two thirty batting average, but the power is not necessarily there. He historically hits lefties, hasn't really hit lefties this year, and he's been really bad the last you know week to ten to fourteen days. Now, some of that could be the the rumors and the changeover that is swirling around him. But I told you, all these guys come at risk because you're uprooting them from comfortable situations, situations they're familiar about. Familiarity and a routine are big in sports. They're big in life, and you're uprooting them, and, and how can they handle that? And then you've got Brandon Drury. Now, Brandon Drury, I know the Braves now, because Adam Duvall is out, are looking at him, and I think that's a good move, especially against left-handed pitching. And he was really good for the Mets as a bench mobber. Big hits, big home runs, things like that. And he's played at a very high level, the level that, that was always kind of thought about with him. They always knew he had power. But many thought he would be a very solid everyday third baseman. And uh, I think he's gotten a little versatility now, playing the outfield and everything like that. Definitely could hit lefties. Would be a nice compliment to Vogelback. But my, and, and I know he's had eye surgery, so maybe he's evolved. Maybe some of the issues he's had were due to health, and maybe that's been fixed. And sometimes guys figure it out late. Look at J.D. Martinez. He figured it out later. So you can't discount totally what you see. And I think he'd be a solid addition, and he might be a better addition than the other two guys if you're only going to play him against lefties. And he could play against righties too. But his numbers in Cincinnati, OPS over 900, are far exceeding the 750, 760, 770 OPS you're getting on the road. So I'm anticipating he's a little over-indexed, and you're going to get a solid guy, a guy that's going to strike it a lot, it's going to hit lefties better than a tough righty, uh, could be a good platoon. I don't think he'll mind playing 40% of the time. Probably will hurt his market value, but somebody will pay him based on his performance in Cincinnati, especially if he gets big hits with the Mets. And I don't know how much he'll cost. You know, that's the really good question. What are the, you know, is there a qual? you know, again, now with the qualifying offer in play, you know, what is that, how does that factor in 
to all these guys. Now, you might say Cincinnati's not going to do that to someone who may take it. I don't know, you know, Drury's uh, situation and what his market would be after this season. He's a DH type, so it might be limited. But uh, you got to think about that because if you have to give up, you're going to have to give up something that you don't want. Maybe Drury's the only one you don't have to give up too much of a painful prospect. You know, Mancini too, but the Orioles front office is smart. They're going to try to find somebody that, that they, they know the Mets need somebody. Maybe not as much as a week ago now that they have Volga back, but they need somebody. I think the trade right now that makes the most sense is, the, and this is the most painful one, it might cost the most out of all of them, uh, even more than J.D. Martinez, is Wilson Contreras and a David Robertson combo. You're bundling them together. There's been some buzz that this is something that the Mets were more interested in a Robertson situation than both, but Contreras could DH. Contreras could lengthen the lineup a little bit if you want to put him behind the plate. I think you saw how valuable Nito could be. Big plays by throwing behind the runner and getting the out at second base in game one. I know he and Scherzer on, you know, kind of trying out that pitch com. I love, by the way, how Scherzer talked about pitch com. I still don't understand how long-term that's going to work, especially as it gets loud in the playoffs, but whatever. I'm not going to get into that today. Um, McCann is a great catch-and-throw guy. McCann is great at managing the staff. Contreras is better, way better offensively than the both, and I know that I've heard some rumblings that his game calling is not great. Uh, he's not a bad catcher at all, uh, but I don't think he's in the same class as those other two guys. So you're really bringing him over as a DH. But, you know, you also, your downgrade is not that bad. Now, the thing is, Bassett, Scherzer, DeGrom, you know, they're going to have a say, hey, I want to throw to my guy. I mean, remember, I always talk about how back in the day, the Mets said Charlie O'Brien, Mackie Sasser, and Rick Cerrone. Nobody, nobody wanted to throw to Mackie. He was the best hitter. They wanted to throw to the other two guys. So you don't want to get into that kind of situation. But to me, that's where the Mets need to go because Contreras hits lefties. Uh, you're not going to platoon him per se, but you could also play him pretty much every day because he could catch. The other guys, I don't know if you're going to throw a Mancini or a J.D. Martinez in the field all that often. Um, so really, to me, that's the trade that makes the most sense as we get close to the deadline. This conversation may go stale today. Who knows by the time you hear that. Off day, right before the trade deadline, perfect day to make a deal. Met, you know, Yankees made a deal right after the game for Andrew Benatendi. And there was another name that was on the Mets list, but I never thought that that was as serious because the lefty bat outfielder, I think I think they're looking more DH type and, and righty, someone that could help them against left-handed pitching. And who has pop? Met, the Yankees have plenty of pop. They need what the Mets have. Mets kind of need more of what the Yankees have. So all these guys add that with pop. So that's kind of where I'm at with the trade deadline. I think that might be the most painful trade. That's the trade I'm honing in on. Our good friend Pat Ragazzo from SI even talked about it yesterday on Twitter. So uh, we'll see. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting over the next few days. There'll be definitely an opportunity to have a good show very soon. Maybe as soon as tomorrow. Who knows? So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we come back, Dave Malicki. You guys know who he is. The former Met who pitched the first Subway Series game at Yankee Stadium in 1997, a complete game shutout. Oh, where has the complete game shutout gone? But anyway, I had a chance to talk to him on the 20th anniversary of the Subway Series in 2017. We are going to replay that on the 25th anniversary of the Subway Series right after this. You're looking at 29-year-old right-hander Dave Malicki, who will take the mound for the Mets. Got it. Looked like an off-speed pitch, and O'Neal is down on strikes. Struck him out. And then he'll move to where he wants to go. That was a 
curveball that caught the inside corner, and Jeter is down on strikes. Three strikeouts for Maliki. That is in there, and he knew it. Another good hook from Maliki. He's got four punch outs. I think you'd sell tickets, though, with Matt Maris, Mandel, and Strawberry. <laughs> Witten goes down on three pitches. Check swing by Kelly. The appeal at first, and the swing is called by Don Dankinger. Another breaking ball and call strike three. Wow, he comes right back with the hook. He got it. He locked him up with a curveball. And Dave Malicki, in his 48th Major League start, has pitched a complete game shutout for the first time in his Major League career. What a performance. A pitcher that was supposed to be the weak link in the Mets rotation against one of the Yankees' best has pitched the Mets to a win in game one of this three-game series. We're back. You guys heard uh, the audio clip uh, 20 years ago, and uh, it's now 20 years since the first Subway Series. And joining us, uh, he pitched in that first game. He pitched a uh, complete game shutout. Complete game, something you don't see too much of today, and it's Dave Malicki. Dave, uh, Mike Silva here in New York. Pleasure to have you on. I, I know that you, you know, obviously talked about this a billion times. We'll do it a billion and one. Are you tired <laughs> of it? I mean, <laughs> your career was a lot more than one game, but obviously here in New York, we, we like talking about that game. Yeah, no, uh, no, no, I'll never get tired of talking about it, I guess, right? Um, you know, it, it is amazing. I feel like I've, I did a lot of uh, some neat things, but uh, this was this was definitely up there, and it's a great memory I have, and um, it was it was something special. It was, you know, special to do it, you know, something like that in New York, uh, and, and I think doing, you know, the first game is, I think, why everybody really remembers it. You know, I think if it happens, uh, you know, today, it's still something really cool don't get me wrong but i think the fact that it was the first game that the, you know the two teams met is is what makes it so special if you look back and i know it's a long time ago uh, you, you know your starters obviously they planned them <laughs> it is a long time ago it is it is it's amazing because i remember watching <laughs> that game live and I'm, I'm i'm 40 years old dave and i'm like geez where where is the time gone by but when you were when yeah, you were looking no at kidding. the schedule as the week came on did, did you were you were you expecting that i mean uh, that was a big deal back in – maybe today it's not. No one's really talking about next week's Subway Series, but uh, maybe today, you know, that, at that point, you know, everybody was circling it on the calendar. Were you as well? Yeah, for sure. I remember when the schedule came out, um, I was really, really hoping I could at least just pitch in the series because, you know, you're, you know, five, six-man rotation. You never know really how it's going to fall. And um, it as it got closer, I was like, well, it's going to be close. Like I'm either going to pitch the game, you know, the night before or or that first game. And I was uh, I was just hoping we wouldn't have a rain out or anything like that. And you know, that Bobby stuck with me. And and uh, it, it was just a game I, I had looked forward to, and it's something I really, really wanted to do. And um, it was it was you know something special, and um, it was you know obviously something I'll never forget. That team was actually the first year that the Mets had, you know, some respectability in a while. 
Uh, it was almost the innocent climb, to use that old Pat Riley term uh, from the 99 and 2000 team. I know that you left uh, a year later, but that team wasn't expected to do well. And I think before you even get to that series, um, what do you remember about that group? Because a lot of Mets fans actually remember that group fondly because there was low expectations. It was a fun team. You were in the wild card race. That series uh, was one of the highlights, but there were so many other memories. And if you go, if, I don't know if you look into any of your old numbers, game scores, things like that. It wasn't even the best game you pitched. You actually, the best game you pitched that year, according to the game score, was a game you lost one nothing to the Phillies later in the year. So it's pretty amazing. There was right. a lot of other memories yeah. I'm thinking that year as well. Yeah, no, I, I did. I had some other some other good games for sure. Um, I, again, I think it was just the, the game, you know, the, that game. Um, you know, for us, we were, you know, the Yankees at the time, um, you know, we're a powerhouse. I think they won the World Series that you know, the past year. Um, obviously, they're a great team. They built teams still together. Um, for me, playing in old Yankee Stadium was something really cool as well, just the history. Of, you know, I love the history of baseball and all that. And, you know, that was something special as well. And, but, you know, we had a great group of guys. Um, you know, I think one thing that helped me out a ton was, you know, Todd Hunley. I, you know, he was – we just worked really well together. And that day, for whatever reason um, – I was just really calm and it was just a, it was a, it was a great feeling, but I just, I just, I knew I was going to do well. It's just, it's amazing how you can kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is, but it was just, it was just, it was just eerily calm and it was, it was just so much fun. It was just a fun night, but yeah, Todd was great. And, you know, we had Gilkey and, uh, you know, Olerud and I mean, we had so many you know great veterans and then pitching wise, you know, John Franco is, you know, still one of the guys I've always looked up to and, you know, you got guys in the, on the back end that can can close the game. So I just figured if I could just go, you know, six, seven innings and turn it over to the bullpen at the time, it was great. And the big thing was for me was getting the three runs early uh, in that first inning, and that made it um, just it took a lot of pressure off. So if I did make a mistake, it wasn't going to cost us a game. And I think that that really helped a lot. You actually pitched the postseason game later in your career, but was that as as intense of a of a game uh, that you remember, I, I think it was later on with Houston. You pitched in a, in a postseason game, but yeah, uh, the crowd and what have you. It was for sure. Um, you know, I think it, it was it, it was it was not <laughs> it was like a postseason game. I, you know, I didn't I never made it to the World Series, um, like you said, but I didn't pitch the, post, the postseason with Houston, and it it was a different feeling. I, the, I think it was it was more excitement in the interleague game, to tell you the truth. Um, it was, um, I'll say this because we were playing in Yankee stadium and then so many Mets fans came to Yankee stadium, which I thought was really cool. And to hear them, you know, do the let's go Mets chant in Yankee stadium was pretty, pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, it was fun, but it was, it was loud. It was, you know, it was a perfect night. Um, it was just, it, it was just a great day. It really was for me. <laughs> I have with me Dave Malicki, former Mets pitcher. You guys remember him, uh, 6 nothing shutout back in 1997, first interleague game. Uh, you actually danced in and out of trouble throughout that game. If you think back, is there a moment, a pitch, an inning, a sequence that you remember where, you know, things could have maybe turned? and uh, Or maybe there's just one memory specific. I know, you know, the game itself, but is there one thing that when that game is brought up, maybe a moment that you think back of, big moment that you got out of trouble or just something that always comes to your mind? Um, oh boy. Well, the thing that always comes to my mind was just obviously just, you know, striking out Jeter to end the game. That was like, um, 
you know, that was that was a thrill. But that you know, the game was in hand at that point, obviously, and I had the bullpen warming up and everything was going. But um, that's that's the you know the big memory I have. Um, some other ones just were some other strikeouts. Um, you know, early you know in the middle middle parts of the game, I I did I gave up a bunch of hits. I felt like I could, you know, the big guys I was getting out, and then um, not the little guys. You don't want to say that, but the, the back end of the order, I had trouble with those guys and. Um, you know that that's that's where I you know I got into trouble. I feel like I gave up a hit almost every inning. I was like, holy cow! But it was just I, I felt like I could get out of anything, which was which was really um, and a good feeling. And um, you know, I think to start the game, I think Jeter got a hit, reached out an air on second, and then got and then I you know got the next three guys out. And I didn't let him advance, and that that gave me a ton of confidence. Just that first inning really kind of set the tone for me. Um, and then again, if I if I threw a bad pitch, Todd got all over me. I remember one, I hung a, a slider to Cecil Fielder and hit it about, oh man, seven miles foul left. <laughs> and uh, Todd came out, got on me and, and, and said, you know, we got to you know, buckle up, do this. And so the next pitch, I, I threw the same thing again and just located better and struck him out. And it was, it was just, it was times like that where I, you know, I, I did get a little lucky at times, I think, because I think that, that, you know, when I hung, when I made a mistake, they, they hit it. But, um, you know, fortunately that one, he, he pulled it foul, but, now there are so many different you know memories I can go through. Um, it feels like it, it just happened. To tell you the truth, I, it, that's one game I really really remember. Um, I think what also brings it up is just you know continually talking about it for sure. But the thing that amazes me the most too is, you know, I still get letters and cards and stuff. I mean, at least once or twice a week uh, from from New York fans still want me to sign stuff, which I think is is, is amazing that they can. Uh, that it still meant so much to so many people. Yeah, that that is that is true. Uh, the city was 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 a buzz about that. Uh, playing for Bobby V, you know, I've met Bobby V. Uh, he's a pretty uh, uh, big personality. You know, he's a controversial personality. Yeah. That was always a, a wild time. You know, talk a little bit because I, the fans always are interested in hearing how was it playing for, for Bobby Valentine because obviously he's <laughs> a polarizing guy, as you I'm sure you know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, obviously good and bad. Um, no, I think he was at the time for that team. I think he was the right manager. Um, you know, he's he's been around the game forever and um, knows his baseball. I, you know, I think sometimes he, he he tries to do different things, which people you know question for sure. Different types of plays and different things, and and uh, but yet it seems to to work out a lot of the time. And um, he is he was just a, he was a big personality, and um, but I think he was absolutely the right. Uh, manager for the time with with that team you know he could keep you know the young guys he kept those guys loose and and um you know would give them confidence and the older guys he would you know let them lead but yet kind of let them lead in the right direction if that makes sense so um he was uh he it was there was never a dull moment let's just put it that way Now, for you, that was some thought a breakout game, and 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 you had a decent Mets career. Your numbers, if you look at the, again, the go to advanced metric, you were very uh, solid above league average pitcher. You started to struggle after that. What what happened for you in New York? Because you went on to Detroit, and you actually pitched pretty well in '99 in in a, in a hitter's league in a hitter's ballpark. Uh, that must have been yeah. an interesting experience. But what happened to you in New York? What what really, if you look back, was there anything that you could point to where maybe it, it didn't go exactly as you wanted? I feel like, yeah, I, I, I feel like I left uh, with unfinished business. I mean, I loved my time in New York. I really did. Um, it was a great place to be and, and live and, um, and, and the fans. I think 
what happened, well, I, you know, who knows what happens, but, you know, I feel like I pitched really, really well for about three and a half years. And then the last year I started struggling a little bit. And I think you just, you know, you, you know, if you lose a little bit, if you lose, you know, focus, you lose your location, anything, I mean, big league hitters are hard to get out. <laughs> they make you pay. And I think I just started pressing a little bit. And then um, I tried to do more than you really need to do, uh, if that makes sense. Like, you, instead of just hitting my spots and hitting, um, you know, what you need to do, I tried to, you know, throw it harder. And every time you throw it harder, you know, location gets off. And that's that's when you get hurt. You know, location is much better than, than speed. And um, I, I think that was the big thing. It was a big growing point for me because that was really the first time I, I kind of struggled a little bit and um, that's uh, you know you kind of have to go through growing pains a little bit and it's hard, it's hard to do that sometimes at the at the major league level I'm laughing as you say location is better than speed Billy Wagner I'm sure you remember him yeah. sent a tweet out yesterday I yes. guess he's doing some baseball training and uh, I'm laughing because some kid I guess was going to velocity training and he was tweeting about, well, what is that? Oh, you know, what is velocity training? And yeah. um, you think about you pitching late into that game that we talked about, and you're pitching close to 190, yeah. 200 innings. You were a young guy. It's, I mean, I, I don't know if you're involved at all in the game with your kids or, or in any capacity, but it's changed so yeah. much, I'm guessing. Even from just 20 years ago, you were a modern-day player, in my opinion, but it doesn't feel like it anymore you know, right. with the way things have, have transpired. You know, it really doesn't. Um, yeah, so – I, I, you know, once the game ended for me, I, I definitely stepped away for for a little bit, and then um, coached some high school baseball, and then my boys uh, got as they got a little bit older, I just started coaching their teams. But now, uh, my boys are freshmen and sophomores in high school, which I can't believe. Um, so I'm helping coach the high school team here again, and then I absolutely love it. It's um, coaching high school baseball is just it, for me, it's so much fun and rewarding. But you're right, every every kid I teach or help coach wants to throw harder or wants to throw, you know, first thing is a curveball at, you know, seven years old. And, and I wouldn't teach it until they got, you know, old enough and strong enough. I think there's so much more, but, you know, I try and bring up guys like, you know, Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin, you know, those guys, I, those guys did not throw hard, but man, they got everybody out. They won Cy Youngs, you know, it's not about it's the speed. And, but I think it's also hard, too. Um, I happened to go to an Indians game last week uh, with the kids, and, you know, they got the, the radar gun up on the, um, you know, scoreboard, obviously, and how hard everybody is throwing is, is just amazing to me. It's it's uh, Everybody's a lot bigger, stronger, and it, it is. I mean, I think, that, you know, everyone throws really hard. But, you know, my personal belief is, you know, if you can hit that spot on the outside corner, it doesn't really matter how hard you throw. If you can move your pitches in and out and uh, change speeds, uh, I, you know, if you talk to hitters, changing speeds and location is the hardest thing to hit. If you throw, you know, 100 miles an hour and it's it's down the middle, they're going to hit it. And um, so I'm trying to teach guys to, to hit spots and have a go-to pitch, you know. If you can throw a pitch down and away to a right-handed hitter, that's you, you know, you can live there all day. There's not a whole lot you can do with that pitch. So, um, although some of these guys are getting so strong now, they hit it to right field, <laughs> hit it out over there. But yeah. um, it it has it has it has changed a lot, and it's it, it's amazing, you know. But I think every generation says that, you know. I remember when when I was pitching, everyone says, you know, the older guys were saying that, you know, it's changed since since they were there. So, you know, I think it evolves for sure. But I, you know, I think good pitching gets beats good hitting any day. You know, I'm looking at your numbers as you're talking. In that Detroit season in '99, 14 wins. 
not a good team, Tiger Stadium, where I guess the outfield's like up against your back out there. Uh, that was pretty yeah. impressive. It seems like you learned a little bit, you know, in an offensive era for a variety of reasons. Uh, th- you know, that was a very solid year. Um, what do you remember yeah. about your time over there in Detroit? Um, again, I, I, I did. I enjoyed it. Um, it was, it was a shock as I was actually at the time of when the year started, I was in LA uh, with the Dodgers and, you know, the, the weather's beautiful and everything's great. And then ended up getting, you know, I got the call that I got traded and uh, we just got finished playing the Diamondbacks and they told me I just got traded to, uh, uh, Detroit. And I was like, Holy crap, <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be cold. It was, but it, it turned out to be great. And pitch, especially pitching in that stadium. Um, there was again. There was so much history. That's what I, I loved about it. Um, but you know, any pop fly to right field went out. I don't know if you remember that old stadium or not. Um, but yeah, the right field fence was was short, and there was actually an overhang um, from the upper deck over the field. And um, it was it was a great stadium to watch a game in, uh, but it wasn't that great of a stadium to pitch in unless you hit it to center field. The dimensions were really really goofy, and that center field was. I mean, it was like four. 20, I think, to 430. It was something huge at the center, but then right field was, you know, just a, a regular pop fly would go out. But I think that actually helped. And there, I, I really got a lot of help with uh, Brad Osmus. Um, you know, he caught me there and in Houston. And, you know, Brad and Todd, I think, were, were two great catchers that I had. I was really lucky to be able to have those guys um, help me out. I learned a lot from them as well. Um, it's amazing how much a catcher helps. And, um, you know, I learned a lot about pitching, a lot, a lot about myself, especially in, in Detroit. That Those were the years I just started, I guess, kind of coming into my own, really, at times. Um, and it was just a, I don't know, it was, it was a good time for me. I, just, I learned a lot about pitching in, the, in those types of stadiums. And you're almost, you, if, if the Mets don't trade for you, you're almost part of that Cleveland team. That You know, things. it's amazing how careers could go. You stay with the Indians, good yeah. team, they always needed pitching. They score a billion runs. They actually yep. just did a, a special on uh, – I don't know if you saw it MLB Network about that team uh, with John Hart and some no. of your, your you know, former teammates there. Yeah. But uh, it's amazing how, how close you could have been to being with that team. And you come to the Mets, which was a transitional period. So it's amazing how things turn out, huh? No, well, for sure. Yeah, you know, coming up with Cleveland was um, – it was great. I had that chance in 92, and they actually called me up in September and – that's when that team was just start, starting to turn around with Tommy and, and Kenny Lofton and, and all those guys and Bayerga and you know I get to, to play with them and I came up with them and yeah I think I really was going to be a part of it and then I uh, uh, hurt my shoulder um, I tore my labor on my last start um, with the Indians and you know, so, you know speaking of that I, you know, I, I pitched the second to last game in the old stadium so I pitched in the old stadium in Cleveland if you remember that place. Um, yep. so there was like 70,000 people, I think it was a football stadium. So, um, that, that was a great time. And then, yeah, I got hurt and came back and pitched well, but then it, it took a little bit longer from that labrum. And then fortunately, you know, I got, uh, you know, traded over to, to New York and it was just, it was for me. Yeah. Looking back, it would have been great to, to go through that and be with those guys. But, um, you know, I think when you're in a playoff run, you know, with playoff teams going to the World Series, you know, the young guys, you know, there's not a really a chance to make a mistake or grow or do anything like that. And I think New York just gave me that opportunity. So, you know, I think everything does happen for a reason. Sure, it would have been great to be a part of that team and and uh, to go through that. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade my time in New York. Uh, it, was, it was awesome. You never thought about what would be if they had made your reliever, especially the way relievers were coming in and 
making money and throwing bullets out of the bullpen? Because you did throw pretty well out of the bullpen uh, <laughs> with the Mets. Yeah, no, I did. Um, my personality was funny. Is I'm more of a guy that likes uh, routine, and um, I like to know. I'm a schedule type of guy. Like I, I like to know when I'm going to pitch, what I was doing, when I was coming to the ballpark, um, what I had to do that day. And um, when I was in the bullpen, it was it was a lot harder for me, uh, just mentally. Um, I liked it in that I would only go, a, you know, a couple innings, but I never knew which innings. Um, you know, and at the end of my career, when I was in Houston, I, I was a reliever for, oh, geez, uh, about a month. But I only would come in for about an inning. And actually, that's when I threw the hardest of my whole life was, was that because I could come in and just, just let it go and not have to worry about trying to get guys out two or three times. I could just throw everything I had at them one time, and I'd never see them again through the lineup. That's what's, you know, so different about starting, you know, starting and relieving, you know, Starting, I'm going to see a guy, you know, three times, maybe four times, and I got to get him out. Where, if, you know, as a reliever, they only see me one time, and I can, I can throw everything at him. Um, but, you know, personally for me, it was, it, I just like starting a lot more, you know, a lot more. It was just, it was, it fit my personality better, and and it was just what I like to do. But, yeah, looking back, gosh, I, it, it was awful when it was over. I wish I could could still be doing it for sure. <laughs> a couple of things before I let you go. So. Who was the one hitter that wore you out? Maybe it might not be an obvious guy. Was there someone you think back who wore you out that you when, you when they got up you're like, I just can't get this guy out. You'd be surprised. I get answers for that. That's uh, not always the obvious answers for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's there was a, a few guys, but I you know the one that always comes to mind is Barry Bonds. He just I the guy was just such a good hitter, and um, he he would just make you, you know, make, if you made a mistake, it was not a good ending. I just, I felt like I always had trouble with him. Um, and the other one I that, that you're going to laugh at this one, but who I still think was the best hitter was Tony Gwynn. And I didn't have that much trouble with him because all I would do is throw a two seamer down the middle and he'd get himself out. <laughs> Cause there's no way you're going to pitch to get him out. He was such a good hitter. He, uh, you know, he was, he was amazing. Um, but those, I think those two kind of stick out. I, I had a little bit more trouble with the left-handed guys in my mind. I don't know if, if statistics show that or not. But um, I felt like against the righties, I could throw my slider and curveball and, and my two-seamer in on them, and I had just had a little bit easier time with them. Um, I felt more confident. I guess it shouldn't say easier. Just I felt more confident going against those guys. But, yeah, Barry, Barry Bonds kind of always sticks out in my mind. What was your favorite ballpark to pitch in, and what was your least favorite one? Oh, I get asked that all the time. Um, looking back, people I mean, love my people favorite, love that gosh, stuff. Any, I know they, they do. Like they drinking. do. Yeah, um, I was the favorite one to pitch. It would have to be Yankee Stadium because <laughs> that has some good memories, right? Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I you know all, you know you know Wrigley was fun to pitch in because just again the history. You know, Old Tiger Stadium is as hard as it was. That was that was pretty cool to pitch in that too just because you're in the dugouts and you realize, you know, who actually played in that stadium and sat in the same seat that I was sitting in. That, you know, that stuff was, was pretty cool. Um, least favorite. I never really liked going to, to Montreal. It was just, I was kind of sterile in that dome. It was just, the, the crowds weren't really that big. And, and um, I don't feel like it was a baseball town, but I honestly, all the, all the towns, and then actually Philly, Philly's a tough time to pitch in too, because the fans there, man, they're rough. They can, they can get on you pretty bad. Um, but if you remember like Philly, 
St. Louis, Cincinnati, all the Pittsburgh, all the stadiums were the same. Those were those generic, you know, football slash, you know, baseball stadiums. And um, so they were just kind of, you know, okay to pitch in. But again, you're, you know, you're pitching in the big leagues. It didn't really matter. Um, but some of the newer stadiums, you know, were fun to play in. Um, I, you know, I, I think those were fun for different reasons for sure. So uh, you'll probably get other calls over the next week. You'll probably, uh, at some point, the clip is going to be played. Uh, have you watched the game with your kids? I know your kids are younger. I, I don't, you know, do they look back at any games? Do you enjoy looking back at your career? They're playing ball now, or are you more like, hey, that was my career, you know, let's focus on the now. Like, uh, I think it would be interesting because right. it's always fun when you talk to ball players. The kids look back and say, that's what you look like? That's how you played? You know, it's a... You know, for any kid, you know, looking back yeah. at how your parents looked many, many years ago. Yeah, it's funny to say that. It's um, it's different because my kids have never, you know, I have pictures of me with my boys, um, you know, on the field, but they were, you know, two years old. They don't remember anything. So, you know, it's 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 funny. Like they know what I did, and they they know that I pitched. But I think now that, um. You know, it's weird because they see me at home all the time, or you know, just coaching baseball or stuff. And I think it's just different to me. I'm just their dad. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I, I didn't, I'm not a pitcher, you know, right? You know, I'm not a player. I think now it's starting to to to, to they think they realize it more and more, especially if we're at, you know, games, and then all their buddies can, um, you know, pick up a cell phone now and and pull up every stat of my career, pull up highlight tapes, and it's pretty funny. So then change things a little bit. So they're like, wow, you really actually did do something, <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I think they've watched that game. I haven't watched it in, in um, gosh, it's probably been, you know, 15, 15 years or something. I really haven't watched it, but I feel like I, I see it all the time in my head. I remember it so vividly. I think I can kind of uh, almost go, Inning by inning, really. I, I, I just for whatever reason, that game really does stand out for me. So, um, but no, I I think they've watched some games with my parents and stuff like that. But we really have never really sat down and, and done that. Um, I feel like, you know, it was such, you know, that you're like you're saying that was my that was my time, and um, I'm sure they've they've seen some stuff. But I've never really pushed baseball on them. I want them to make their own choices and, and do what they want to do. And so my older one actually is he's actually a really pretty good baseball player. Um, but they, he plays baseball and, and hockey, and the younger one plays. He gave up baseball. That one, that one was tough, tough on me. But he gave up baseball for lacrosse, and he's a hockey player as well. So, you know, I let them do what they want to do and, and find what, what makes them happy. You know, for me, baseball was was my life. That's what I wanted to do, and it, it afforded me so many great things. And um, you know, that was my dream, and I want them to have you know their own dream. I don't, you know, I don't push it on them. So, uh, you know, hopefully they they enjoy it. And, you know, I know my older one does. And, and um, like I said, he's, he's pretty good. And, and um, so, you know, who knows, let's see what happens. Are you a baseball fan now or because you played, you kind of, you know, focused on other things. Most players tell me they really don't watch the game after they, you know, play the game because you lived it for. for Yeah. Yeah. I tell people that I don't, I, you know, I felt, I felt bad because I, I really, I don't watch it that much anymore. Um, I, I started watching it again now a little bit with, with my older one. Um, like I said, we went to an Indians game the other day, but, you know, the guys I played with and my old roommates are all, uh, you know, GMs and coaches and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, Depoto, the GM, and, and Doug Henry, he's a pitching coach, and, you know, Mike Sarball is my third base coach over at the Indians now. And 
So I, that makes it fun for me. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't watch it for a while. I'm starting to again. Um, it's you know I tell people I watched you know 200 baseball games a year for for 20 years. It's like I've seen a lot of baseball, <laughs> major league baseball. So um, it's fun. That's why I, I can get my fix now by just going to the high school games and 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 that. I thought I would like to look in you know maybe coaching in college or something like that, but I think that would be that take up too much time for my family. I think that's why high school is just such a great, great fit for me right now. And it's, uh, it's fun. We've got a good program over here and, and, um, it's, it's been enjoyable. Well, listen, you've been generous with your time. I appreciate it. The fans here definitely do remember that they don't get tired of this stuff, especially Mets fans. Uh, you know, you, you know that playing here, nostalgia is a big part. They may not have a lot of world championships, but nostalgia is and, Look, you go down in the Pantheon, Dave. Doesn't matter if it's one game or ten games or hundred games. You know, you know, maybe it wasn't Piazza, but you're in that Mets Hall of Fame for that game. Yeah. So it's got to feel good, and and we appreciate yeah. you spending a few time, a few minutes here, and you know, well, let's catch up again, alrighty? Absolutely, anytime. I love talking baseball. So and uh, yeah, and, and yeah, like you said, the New York fans fans were were awesome. Loved them. So I appreciate it. We like to look back at Mets history at the Talking Mets podcast, like on August 10, 2017, when Dave Malicki joined me as we remembered his shutout of the Yankees in the first ever Subway Series in 1997. The thing that always comes to my mind was just obviously just, you know, striking out Jeter to end the game. That was like, um, the, you know, that was that was a thrill. But, that, you know, the game was in hand at that point, obviously, and I had the bullpen warming up and everything was going. But um, that's that's the, you know, the big memory I have. Um, some other ones just some, or some other strikeouts. Um, you know, early, you know, in the middle middle parts of the game, I and I did. I gave up a bunch of hits. I felt like I could, you know, the big guys I was getting out, and then um, not the little guys. You don't want to say that, but the, the back end of the order, I had trouble with those guys. And um, you know, that that's that's where I you know I got into trouble. I feel like I gave up a hit almost every inning. I was like, holy cow! But it was just I, I felt like I could get out of anything, which was which was really um, and a good feeling. And um, you know, I think to start the game, I think Jeter got a hit, reached out an error on second, and then got and then I you know got the next three guys out. I didn't let him advance, and that that gave me a ton of confidence. Just that first inning really kind of set the tone for me. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. back final thoughts i hope everybody enjoyed this midweek edition of the talking Mets podcast as we recap the subway series another fun checkpoint in the season we're days away from the trade deadline we're days away from that hey this is the team now it's time to go and get them jacob de is on the way back that'll be a big story big two series against atlanta there's going to be a lot of fun baseball the next two months I think there's going to be a lot of big games. I think there's going to be more sweaty situations like we saw in the uh, the past couple of days against the Yankees. So really, you know, like I said, I think the next you know six games or so are so important because it could give the Mets a little bit of a cushion because as the Braves come into City Field, uh, you know, really the Mets in a five game series, all they have to do is really take three out of, out of five, and they they expand their lead. When you're the team ahead. The pressure to reel off two, three, four in a row sweep. Uh, and even if you win a series by a game, you only pick up a game. The pressure's on the other team. And the odds, especially uh, when you're playing a good team for the Braves, it's the Mets, for the Mets, it's the Braves. 
very hard to sweep those series. And when you have elite pitchers like Scherzer, you have Bassett pitching again at a top of the rotation level. You have DeGrom coming back, even if it's for four innings. Right now, with the way that Diaz is, it's six outs you're trying to figure out. And if you could get yourself a bullpen arm like Robertson, you probably figured out three of them. You're figuring out three outs. And the Mets with Adovino, with Lugo, can Lugo sneak back into this equation? That's the thing. Peterson's not even in that game last night. If We know Lugo is Lugo. If Lugo could sneak back into that and be a little bit more consistent, and maybe Buck hasn't trusted him to the level of Adovino, nor has he deserved that Lugo. Adovino's moved ahead of him on the pecking order. Amazingly enough, man, the math works really good in the Mets' favor. And yes, they need another bat, but they get, you know, their 90% win percentage. 90% of the time when they score five runs, they win. But if they hit that four-run mark, it's very hard to hit five-plus runs uh, in, in a postseason series against elite teams with really good pitching. They score four runs with that starting rotation, with that bullpen that I just outlined with a Robertson and a, and a much different Lugo. You got a real good shot at winning this thing. And it could be a really fun back half of the season, just as fun as those last eight or so weeks in 2015 that we experienced what seems like yesterday but it's seven years ago and it's been a long time ago. It'll be closer to 10 years since the last World Series than it's closer to, hey, it was just yesterday. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for joining me on this midweek edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media, and you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network, as well as RozzyApple.com. As always, we love those guys. Well, guys, another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast very soon. We know it could be Sunday. It could be sooner. Buckle up. Plenty of news coming. Plenty of big games coming. Till then, I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy the games. Be well. Our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, 
We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.